0: a lot of what I did was just sort of sit with people and slowly get a sense of who actually really wanted to do this mm-hmm. and not really ever don't ever press on the detail you know let them take the story where they want it to go not press them on anything and some people you would realize okay this person really like really wants to do this and really wants to talk about this and other people you realize very quickly no they don't and if they don't you just let them finish where wherever they want to finish and that's fine you thank them very much and then you use that bit of that interview to sort of inform, inform the larger pro- project in a, um, in a broad sense, but you don't go back and say, well, no, but tell me like, were you, or were you not in the party? And like, what happened?
1: <laughs> I heard you tell a story about how the CIA um, Sort of started a little bit like frat boys. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now, so um, I would love you to like tell that story about um some examples of that, but also how the CIA is now evolved into this like woke CIA,
2: right, right,
0: right. <laughs> that We're seeing now. <laughs> well, that 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 line is actually more direct than it might appear at first glance. So, um, the CIA was founded just after World War II. Um, the United States, the United States came out of that war being by far the most powerful country in the world and in human history, but they didn't really have the overseas covert, covert operators that the British and Russians had during their era of empire. They were new to what I would call imperialism. So they founded um, the CIA and the, the, these men almost exclusively came from the ranks of what we would call the blue bloods in the United States. Like the closest thing we have to an aristocracy in the U S they all went to boarding schools. Um, these, they all were part of these like private, like uh, super secret organizations like Skull and Bones. They all went to Yale. They all knew each other. They grew up with each other. They were all in fraternities together. They were usually Protestant, like hyper elite. And um, contrary to what some people might think about the CIA, they were by their, by the standards of their time, liberal and cosmopolitan. They were not Hmm. like the knuckle dragging conservatives of the South. They believed themselves to be very sophisticated and open-minded and they really believed in sort of, you know they were (laughs) They were, you know, they came from the Ivy League. They were, Mm -hmm. they were, they thought that they were really sort of intellectually uh, 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 mature and global. And yeah, exactly. You know, so they were, on the one hand, they were absolutely frat boys. And you can see this in the way that they acted in the 1560s, they got really drunk all the time. They kind (laughs) of treated, they would have these crazy parties when they would like literally fall down and do th- insane things but they also kind of treated their the world as if it was like a rowing competition at school mm-hmm. right they were really like believed in meritocracy They believed that they were going to do a good job we're going to get them right this deeply american especially american elite idea that like you know i'm going to go out there and show them that i'm good and um they did this with a lot of money with absolutely no consequences, and often <laughs> lubricated with a bunch of alcohol, um, I mean, and
1: British just, actually.
0: Well, no, but this, so this is this they a lot of them went to the kinds of American high schools that were trying to be the uh, Eton College of the United States. So, like, they all were like from they all went to boarding schools that were based on the. The boarding schools of uh, of england right like they they all like really looked up to eton and etonians and mi6 and very disturbingly they thought james bond was really cool as like, <laughs> as like a piece of fiction and like you know they, they really like and they had they had this weird they had a weird inferiority complex towards mi6 they knew they saw mi6 as like the even more like um elegant and sophisticated uh 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 defenders of western civilization on wow. the front lines of empire or whatever right and so they they often had there was this weird there was often this weird uh, interplay <laughs> where the, sure. the u.s had all the money yeah it, well the u.s had all the money but the MI- mi6 really knew what they were doing so the MI- mi6 was kind of mi6 really pushed the cia into backing the coup in iran in 1953 um mm-hmm. because the mi6 couldn't get it done on their own it was really initially about iranian Uh, control of oil that was supposed to be in the minds of MI6 controlled by Britain Mm -hmm. and they and they turned to the Americans knowing what Americans cared about and like well did you also know that these Iranians might become communists and have you thought about that has anybody (laughs) told you that and that got like the you know the Mm. the the red-blooded Americans all excited about this uh, this this coup that they were going to back so yeah from the beginning it was young men that were deeply American and deeply Protestant, but thought thought of themselves as worldly and sophisticated. Now, this kind of all makes sense when you see these recent videos about like, you know, uh, uh, the CIA is an intersectional gay friend, you know, uh, gay, um, welcoming, uh, multiracial entity is that, they still get their people from the best universities in the United States. So whatever mm-hmm. the ideology is on college campuses, that's kind of going to be their ideology too. It's going to merge with this very uh, concrete material need to further the interests of the United States, wherever they are, but they're going to get the same types of people <laughs> that you would meet at a party. If you were on the campus of Yale or Harvard or Berkeley or whatever. I mean, I went to Berkeley, um, for undergraduate, one of the more like, you know, liberal or left even schools in the U S and CIA was definitely recruiting on our campus. And um, yeah, I mean, the CIA, that's where they come from. It's, it come it's the self-conscious elites uh, of the U S ruling class that, you know, they don't like to think of themselves as, as like um, Hicks in the South. Mm -hmm. They like to think of themselves as, you know, You know, dancing the waltz in some Vienna uh, ballroom and trading secrets with the Soviets. Even though, really, at the beginning, they had no idea what they were doing. They were basically just powered by huge amounts of money and the fact that they would never get in trouble because they had the U.S. government behind them.
2: That's a great aesthetic. <laughs> yeah.
1: And um, can you just relate that story about the sex tape that they made? Yes,
0: I want to know about is the sex that... tape. Yeah. So this is again, like as I as I mentioned, like. They didn't understand the world at all but they had unlimited resources and they could never get in trouble right so after 1955 when the united states started uh, funneling money to the right wing uh, or you know conservative muslim party in indonesia and that failed they started looking for other ways to bring down sukarno indonesia's first president and uh, leader of the third world movement um they discussed assassinating him that's a classic that's a classic thing you can do. They even went as far, according to Declassified Files, as selecting the person that would carry out the assassination. But they also went to their friends in Hollywood to try to assassinate his character. Um, if you know like classic Christmas songs in America, the, you know the singer named Bing Crosby. Mm. Well, Bing Crosby had a production company in Los Angeles. The CIA went to him. Via a fixer that worked for Howard Hunt and said, we need to produce a sex tape that's going to portray Sue Karner sleeping with a white Russian blonde woman that we're <laughs> going to say is from the KGB. And Bing Crosby said, of course, because back, back then the CIA was seen as like this patriotic force. So they hired a Mexican-American. Uh, from the LA like underworld (laughs) acting scene because they figured like well that's close enough right like Mexicans look Mexicans look kind of like Asians I know yeah Yeah, a brown person (laughs) they put him in a bald cap because they wanted to in addition to portraying Sukarno as you know um promiscuous and uh uh controlled by the KGB they wanted to to show the world that he's bald they thought that that would destroy (laughs) indonesians respect for him and this is very reminiscent of what happened with fidel in the early 60s one of the one of the cia plots was to make his beard fall out and they thought in this very very racist and orientalist way oh well down in latin america they really respect machismo so much so that if his beard falls out they won't respect him anymore because he won't be a man (laughs) that's where his soul is yeah, yeah exactly so this is so they made apparently they made the tape um uh, Bing, Crosby and his, Bing Crosby and his brother Larry put this together but uh, it wasn't released apparently because it just wasn't convincing enough but I mean no. again if they had <laughs> but if they had say. if they had it been so deeply American yeah and Puritan and Protestant they would have known that everyone in Indonesia already knew that Sukarno was promiscuous and mm-hmm. had, had, had had all kinds of affairs with women this wouldn't have shocked people the way that it would have if, for example, a sex tape of John F. Kennedy or Eisenhower came out, they had, you know, again, this is this under, to underline the same point, they had unlimited resources. Mm -hmm. They could never get in trouble if they failed. And they didn't really think about the actual place as a real place. They thought it as part of their sort of stupid, like boys club competition to see who could do a better job at fighting communism. Right. So the story is very funny, but it also isn't right. I mean, it's a it's a farce. It could, you know, it's someone should make a movie about it. But at the same time, they're trying to destroy the reputation of the founding father of a country. They don't understand at all for reasons that they don't even understand. Mm-hmm. And and they have they have the privilege, the, the position in world history to to be able to try to carry something like this out. That
2: is sickening. I will also, you've just ruined Christmas for me as well.
0: <laughs> those are, I mean, those are good albums, the the Bing mm. Crosby Christmas yeah. songs. Yeah.
2: Oh God. Uh <laughs>
1: Um, so Fabriana, do you have any sense of the reception of this book in Indonesia? I mean, you were saying it was hard for you to read it, but do you feel um, how do do you have any idea of like how other advent- Indonesians may have received this book? Although we kind of yeah. discussed that maybe Vincent won't be allowed in Indonesia anymore.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I think like uh, you know, Indonesian doesn't really read. Um, Bahasa Indonesia so um, I don't ask everyone but it's there's like so funny thing like this book become like everyone who read this book looks like very smart right so I'm in Jakarta method right now so I have a I have a funny story so this is just my impression because everyone, I have read Jakarta method I have read Jakarta method and I was just like so everyone in social media whatever uh but I, I, I didn't read that because I think like if I read about an path, I have to be ready with myself like emotionally. So I have this funny story. There is like a very rich guy, like friend of my friend in front of me, reading Vincent's book. And then he didn't even look at me. And, and he said, what are you doing? And I was just, I want to say, oh, maybe you read that book. There was my name there. The, the audience of the book is very, very like rich kids. That I think it's cool, like like very middle class. I think like middle class, upper class, even like very upper class. I don't know whether they really read that book, but I feel like. (laughs) Just carrying around. (laughs) Yeah, it's carrying around. Like most, but I think Indonesian is more like watching film and documentaries rather than read a book. But uh, I think the audience is more sophisticated. Sophisticated, like academicians um like a student in university who 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 like exposed to the English uh, English book like for example and some of them rich kids of course because they want they want to look smart yeah
0: because Febriana is uh like in like the one of the first pages I I think her is one of the uh, the people that made it possible, God. but um, but I think again once more, I think I went to her for help. I think I did right, Fabriano, when I was when we were discussing the possibility of an Indonesian translation because it is happening now. Mm-hmm. But um, at first I wanted to ask her for her opinion because at first it seemed like the the translation rights were being bought by Gramedia, which is like a, a very large corporate entity in Indonesia, and the fear based on something that had happened to another author based in London, Suchen marching was that maybe Grimetti was going to buy it in order to not publish it, or that maybe Grimetti was going to buy it and then really censor it so that it wouldn't come out at all. So now it is being translated by a smaller left-leaning press and they're very brave and like, they're really, know they're very good at what they're doing. So we'll see how that goes, um, how the reaction is when it actually comes out in Bahasa because as she Points out like you know, there's only a small group of people that read English and yeah,
3: yeah. I'm I'm hoping because uh, we need to rewrite the history of 1965. If uh, they publish this book, I think it will be really helpful for us to introduce this to the like high school student. Uh, because with my uh, experience with the uh, remember 1965, my organization. Um, We have so many audience, like the third generation, they are in uh, high school and university. So uh, we need like a book, I think, uh, that can give like um, alternative history uh, aside from the uh, school book, a history school book that actually like produced by under the Suharto regime, and still the same history book until today.
2: And I'm think? curious about, remember 1965, so you um, do you focus more on uh, kind of making an unknown history better understood? Or is it like in your film where you talk about how capitalism or capital is, is, is killing the rainforest right now?
3: Um, actually, remember 1965, um, uh, we focus on the third generation. So the grandchildren, and we asked them to share the story of their experience of the family during the 1965. So the, the first article, the first essay is actually published. It's my article, my essay, but then we have to uh, drop the article because uh, the Islamic the further Front helped me at that mm. time. So we need to erase all my Uh, track in internet online including that so uh, we published some story from the third generation about their family experience so that's why I convinced myself that every Indonesian is actually part of story Mm -hmm. I don't have to feel conflicted if I report about 1965 anymore I don't have to be afraid because I know like exactly like my grandfather yeah but yeah, I think everyone has the story with their family members. So I I convince myself until to this day that you you don't have to be afraid. Just talk about it.
1: Right. What do you think the odds are, Vincent, of this book being taught in in American schools?
0: <laughs> oh, I mean, well, well, one hundred, well, on one hundred percent. If we're if we if we consider like one or two schools to be enough, I've already gotten some some like college professors and high school teachers have i i like it has at least been assigned in one or two high school and college courses so far which is really great i mean again like when i started writing this like it wasn't supposed to be a big book like my publisher didn't expect it to really sell um so i was really i mean i'm really really overcome and sort of grateful that it's somehow making a little bit of an impact but i mean to be actually like assigned as part of the curriculum i think that's impossible i think that would undermine the the literal point of public schooling Uh, you need to form citizens that can act you know engage uh productively in in society and i think that you know telling too much of that story um contradicts that that role for public education but you know it's 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 here and there already it's already you know i I spoke to one high school class again it was an elite it was like one of these like new york sort of like uh liberal the future
1: CIA yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe they yeah, maybe
0: they were like you know training you know reading it to, uh, to learn how to do better no I'm just mm-hmm, kidding Um, <laughs> um oh my gosh. no uh, but yeah so so you know it's made a little impact you know and I'm really mm-hmm. like you know a couple of yeah a couple of courses in high school and university have assigned it but I think long term you have to look at the structural mm-hmm. the structural contradictions between the formation of a of a Citizenry, which really believes in the American myth and yeah, yeah, really believes in sort of the American civic religion and, and telling too many of the stories about our past. I think we can kind of selectively tell them, especially when it's really far along in the past. Okay, we can now start to talk about slavery 200 years later. Um, but uh, <laughs> I think there's I think there's real structural contradictions, uh, unfortunately. I mean,
1: that does make me think of like the whole idea of declassified documents from the CIA. Oh, right. um, what is the time? I think in the UK it's like 30 years or something. But what is um, the time frame in for the CIA in the US?
0: So in the in the CIA, it's whenever they feel like never. If they if they want, oh, never. But I thought so, it was so, a freedom
1: of information. So
0: that's the thing. So State Department basically dumps everything according to the time frame.
1: Okay.
0: CIA does not. So I was able to draw upon declassified State Department files for the period, and that, that's what a lot of the core of the, the argument of the book rests, is really showing the way that the U.S. government was talking about the massacres as they happened. Mm-hmm. Right. The CIA documentation from the early 60s, we do not have. Mm. Uh, now, okay. I, ca- I called them up and I asked them, but they did not tell me right i i i tried uh and you know uh, predictably they didn't they didn't they didn't tell me but you no know, so see see i we still don't have um but yeah there is there is a kind of a dynamic in which in the west we we allow enough enough truth to be told that everyone can feel free without the average person really getting a sense of the of the of the full nature of u.s empire and like you know um, so yeah i mean on the one hand, it's really amazing the... I mean, no, Bradley Simpson, the historian, did really the heroic work of going through all of the declassified files in Washington and getting, you know, building the, the story out of that. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, that that's really amazing. On the other hand, again, there are structural factors where if something is really, really explosive, they they have ways to keep it, keep it under wraps if they need to. Or,
1: well, I mean, like the Afghanistan papers right. that were released and then didn't really make any sort of impact. right? So I guess that's one way of just making it disappear and, and appear to be transparent or?
0: Well, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say to what extent these structures are intentionally created or if they just kind of evolve over time. But I think you do have a system uh, in the US of the reproduction of, uh, 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 of sort of consent among most of the population that exists alongside this small group of people that has always, you know, since the middle of the 20th century, we've been reading sort of more dissident or anti-imperialist or anti-CIA literature. And it's small enough that it's not a big deal. Mm. Um, And you can kind of have both. Um, And whether or not that was on purpose, it does work out, I think, fairly well that, you know, on the one hand, you can let, you can let people like me and, you know, a few thousand, uh, 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 people that buy a book like this have their fun like learning all the secrets but you know the vast majority of people are still going to just uncritically well not uncritically but they're just they don't have the time really to mm. to unlearn and relearn um the nature of u.s foreign policy over the last last century they kind of you know they get the 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 official version
2: uh, that was going to be kind of my question as well like you you see um we have kind of movements around identity politics, um, Black Lives Matter um, and um, increased rights for LGBT people. Um, and then also you have kind of um, slightly, you know, radical left movements like um, like Jeremy Corbyn became quite popular. You have um, Navarra Media um, going up, Bernie Sanders, you've got the Bernie bros. Um, no, do you think that there is a cultural movement um, towards kind of a wider acceptance of alternative narratives, or, or do you think that it's just not gonna go that far? Like, what, what do you think about the time that your book is being released, which is now, and, and, and how that's gonna be received culturally?
0: Yeah, I think, and I think you can point to material shifts that undergird um, the processes that you're describing. One is that the West is less powerful than it used to be. So the U.S. and the U.K. are in relative com- com- decline. Uh, the U.S. is still by far the most powerful country in the world, militarily, economically by far, but still it's in relative decline. So you get more of a uh, reflection on history when you are are face to face with the limits of your own power. Uh, and number two, there's the internet, right? So, for better or worse, I think for better and worse, you get the proliferation of discourses and the proliferation of, of narratives um, as a result of the internet. This also leads to all kinds of insanity and people believing, <laughs> complete, completely, mm-hmm. completely ridiculous things. But it 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 sort of shakes up the 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 landscape, um, which used to be dominated largely by one or you know three or four, corporate owned outlets. Um, so yeah, there's absolutely space for these kinds of struggles on the local level and even on the macro level to, to reclaim narratives or as Fabriano puts, like, you know, rewrite the history of of her country. And that will be all about, you know, Indonesians fighting within this new space uh, um, battles over, you know, this and that uh, aspect of of legacy. So, so yeah, I think those two things open up kind of a field for contestation and it's up to the people to, to, to fight on it.
1: Well, that does bring me to Fabriana saying that, you know, you were talking about new, younger generation are more engaged in rewriting history. Um, How do you see that? Is there a movement, do you think, that's, like, coming up that will be anti-imperialist and maybe?
3: Yeah, I think, especially when Indonesia right now have a very serious issue with the uh, colonization in West Papua. Um, So, it's easier for me to introduce the 1965 issue because it is happening right now in West Papua. So uh, the history of West Papua cannot separate from uh, what happens uh, during 1965. And remember that the first overseas company that get the contract in Indonesia to exploit the nature is Freeport, which is like the largest gold mining company based in US. So, so CIA like uh, KU, KU, Su, uh Sukarno um and then replace it with Suharto and Suharto signs the first contract with the overseas uh companies with the freeport in West Papua. So it's, it's 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 you can find like the connection of all these events. So it's easy uh, right now for Indonesians they especially the young generations um, especially right now like west papua become a headline so what we introduce as a reporter or journalist that we look back at the history back in 1965 mm-hmm. and uh, it actually the 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 i mean like the mom, the so the momentum is keep going on since the international people to tribunal and then there is like a huge, huge protest in Indonesia during 2019, the anti-racism protest, thanks to Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, is, it is still going on until today. And uh, I think like I'm very optimistic with the third generations. So I keep like writing the story about, yeah, West Papua in 1965 as well. So hoping that more book that will help these young generations to, um, I think, like, to understand what happens um, back then with their family during 1965. Yeah.
1: Was there a specific
3: hopefully, event? Uh, hopefully oh. that uh, the, the book, like, Finson book will be out, like, I don't know, this year or next year. I'm not sure.
0: They were, I mean, they were. they were trying to get it done by September 30th this year, but mm-hmm. I don't know. You know I'm, I'm
3: curious with the uh, response from the Indonesian military I think like usually they will ban the book first or like they will buy all the book <laughs> well,
2: <that'd be laughs> oh. yeah. well, let's hope it's the latter you know yeah, yeah.
3: so I wo- I work with temple I work with tempo before I uh-huh. become a French journalist so every time Tempo publishes a headline the military like or like yeah the military mostly like both all the uh, simple magazine edition. So, first, they will like ban your book, secondly, no. they will like buy all your book. So, the more that they bo- your book ban, like everyone will like copy it.
2: Oh,
0: it's <laughs> like, already
3: there will, be, there will be black market for it mm. in Bahasa Indonesia. Well, this,
0: yeah, this already,
3: doesn't it. Work. yeah, it, it doesn't work. People is going to find like it's getting popular. So, the, there is like both. <laughs> the book will be like popular because first it's banned or like the military will buy it and it's disappeared <laughs> from the market everyone curious okay we are going to copy this book because the book disappeared so, so, is so there's no, it's
1: <laughs> the-
2: enjoying, it's I mean, print more. Then print more.
0: <laughs> you know, print yeah, as indeed. much as you
2: can. See how indeed. much they can
0: buy. A, a bunch of people, on Indonesians, on social media have already uh, like <laughs> messaged me because, like, they bought the they bought the book on Tokopedia, which is like Indonesia's kind of like you know, I don't know, uh, a local uh, website. Um, Like marketplace and the version of the book they got is just somebody that printed it out and glued it together you know god!
2: God. that's what my brother
0: yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. that's how my brother read your book actually yeah yeah. um, yeah. so once the translation exists into bahasa like anyone that wants to find it they will you know if they're trading pdfs or printing out their own own edition so that's they're, they're just working on the translation which is the main thing
1: so what do you think um I mean I just don't I guess I don't understand enough about the book industry that uh your publisher was thinking it wasn't going to be a big deal and
0: uh well yeah it wouldn't it wouldn't be normally right I mean it's a it's a it's so a number one serious <laughs> serious nonfiction is as a rule doesn't sell generally serious nonfiction is kind of they do it for prestige it makes them look good but then they make all of their money from Twilight and Harry Potter and like self-help books and you know uh, maybe like Gian Tolentino type, like sort of uh, uh, you know re- uh, reflections on things that everyone can relate to. That's what really sell. Mm-hmm. Serious nonfiction usually doesn't sell, even if it's about something that everyone knows about, like the Vietnam War or the World War II. Now, serious nonfiction about Indonesia, which is a country that <laughs> most, most people in- don't know. <laughs> yeah, most people in the U.S. have never even heard of it. Just you know, they thought it would be good. They thought it would be like a medium-sized whatever. But it sold out right away the the first printing i mean they had to reprint it nine times because the initial printing was like less than 10 percent of what was needed it sold out for two months um and so yeah it was just kind of they didn't i don't know i don't know maybe it was lucky i mean i think it was yeah it just hit at the right moment where everyone is in lockdown and and Mm -hmm. i was just a lot of people needed somebody on their podcast or their youtube show so i just spent like all (laughs) all summer doing that mm-hmm. and i think it just got got lucky that it hit and also it's you know it's something that once people kind of like wait what is that is something they realized that they didn't know a lot about and that people should know more about but it, yeah it was just i think a lucky it was supposed to be medium small and by luck it got medium big but um... no
2: it's explosive like i want i want everybody in uh, the asian community to um asian diaspora
0: to oh, the diaspora um, yeah, to read the- this, yeah the Asian community, that'd be 4 billion, sure, 4 billion yeah. people. Well, yeah, be, uh, yeah I really want that for you, you know, <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Or maybe just the CIA bought every copy and like, yeah. told you that.
3: Uh, yeah. So the funny thing is that some of the Indonesian exile already read that book, and the first capture of it they sent me is just my name. I said, like, what is your opinion about the book? Why you send that capture <laughs> of <laughs> I feel like it's, it's just like... I think like it's a little disaster because like everyone February I I saw your name but yeah <laughs> and I then know they just all stopped that. there
2: <laughs> Yes and
3: I <laughs> yeah. didn't stop sending that I was mean, like why didn't you put that my name so <laughs> everyone just like send that February and even like Tanwapio, you February yeah. that you your name in that <laughs> I was, like, Who do you think Fabriana dose I think it's only one <laughs> So <it's, laughs> yeah so funny and i asked them what is your opinion about the book yeah yeah some of them like um, it's very emotional it's very hard yeah same with me like yeah that's like the first impression because it's about our life Hmm. someone wrote wrote our life and it's it's difficult
0: i can only imagine you know, I mean, I, I mean, I remember, I mean, I wanted to put that at the very beginning because usually you put your people that you think at the end, but I wanted to put on the first page because I wanted to really be like, okay, now these people really were there first and I'm really building on what they did. And another person in that paragraph was Josh Oppenheimer, but, um, I told myself, so I watched the act of killing like many years ago, and then I told myself that I would rewatch it when I was reading, watching, writing the book and I couldn't watch it. Like I I like sat down to watch it part two and after having met everybody and really knowing the story, I couldn't I was like, No, I can't, I can't ever, I can't ever watch that again. So I can't imagine what it would be like, you know, to pick up you know have to be asked to read this book I mean mm-hmm. I don't you don't expect anyone to read it certainly anybody that it's going to be difficult for but like Francesca the kind of one of the main characters in the book I think I think probably the hero I mean it depends you know it depends on who you ask but she read it and she said of course you know that it was she was very glad it came out she lives in Amsterdam she's probably the main character but she said it was very her, her daughter told me that it was it was an emotional emotional thing It like uh, yeah, I can't even imagine if it. You know, if it I was, I think
3: like for the at the, the third generation because uh, we feel guilty because we we couldn't do anything because we were we weren't we weren't born yet. Even mm. like like me, I have never met my grandfather. And then um, if if only I can, I could do something. But I wasn't born yet. I wasn't born yet. So that every time I. Every th- so when I read the book, I feel so angry, I feel so upset, and I feel like I didn't know what to do. And for like, I think the Indonesian exile feel like so relief because even like one of them, they had a dream, in their dream that they meet their parents and they explained that to their parents that they are not criminals because uh, Indonesian government labeled them as a criminal. Indonesian, like in uh, like, the, most of the Indo- uh, half on the Indonesian label these people like as communist all, all over and criminal, they even have that dream. So I think like s- some people, some of Indonesian Excel read this book, they feel relieved because, oh, I finally someone like recognize me. Oh, this is international book that they- I'm not a criminal. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing they, they want. Like they are not a criminal. So yeah, some some they have like they can read that book very exciting, but some like like me, I'm like the third generation. Most of us cannot like read all the whole book in like a week. I <laughs> think like every time I imagine, oh my god, this is like so tragic. So yeah, for us like the grandchildren, it's very hard.
2: There's so many. I think that the story. There's so many untold stories like uh, I was telling my dad that um, that I was interviewing you guys today and and he told me about his uncle who um, was writing like sort of editing for a left leaning uh, newspaper in in Sarawak and then was arrested without trial and put in like just disappeared for like eight years and then he ended up when he got out he like tried to reintegrate couldn't jumped off a hospital building and um, and then that's like a like kind of a, a, a family secret. But that's Malaysia. That's the British. But I mean, it just sounds. What,
0: what year was that? What year did he get uh, arrested? Oh, if you don't mind me asking. Not sure. I
2: okay. can look it up. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if. That yeah, is that's the same what happened. Story my dad told me.
3: Yeah, that's what <laughs> happened. Like everyone disappeared, right, with yeah. no explanation, and we are
1: waiting. The thing is, people disappear, and I mean, my dad told me a similar uh, story, and none of the. The children, it's just not talked about. The children don't know where they are. Mm, like, where yeah. is my father? Where's my grandfather? Mm-hmm. Just gone. And then, even I think, when they come out of prison, no explanation again. And they're just sort of like brought back to society that's completely forgotten their sacrifice. There's no acknowledgement yeah. of the sacrifice they've made.
2: Yeah, because it's like in let's say in the UK, you know, everyone's always proudly talking about the their the grandfather's sacrifice and and the heroism and and this and that, because the regime that sent them out is still in power, but one. um and their their history's represented and celebrated. But um I guess if the regime's changed, um, then they become the enemy and it just becomes a, a really shameful secret. So um yeah.
1: And continuing, yeah. I mean, even I think with your documentary for, for Brianna Our Mother's Land uh, you, are, um, you interviewed all these people that had protested and had like terrible things happen to them as a result of the protest and then it didn't really work. <laughs> to say you know the corporations still have their hold on the land
3: so talking about that loss that feeling of loss I remember when the first time I found out um, when my mother said that your grandfather he didn't pass away and it was just like what what didn't pass away what do you mean and then uh, she told me that she just dis- he disappeared Then yeah old were you? The- um, I was just in earlier in my university in the university so it was like it's com- my life like completely changed and I still have this like very so many questions about that so they're like yeah she didn't tell me right away this is the story but like another day she told me another day she told me another story so it, it's it's a a really long process, so that's why when I I knew that I want to be a journalist and I want to rewrite the history, <laughs> so so that's why you know, when I wrote about 1965, I was very emotional because I don't know I was crying when I'm write mm-hmm. I was writing the story the article was like, and then um, yeah, including reading that book. But the feeling of loss, I don't know. It's 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 not going anywhere. It's, it, even I know the story already. Like I still feel like the same the first time I heard that he didn't pass away, and then it's it's not disappear from me until to this day. So I don't know how like everyone cope with this. I think every grandchildren has like this. Why why this is happen? Why this is happen? So it's still a question. Do you think that this feeling
1: day? is um, about the injustice of it and the fact that it's not...
3: Injustice, grief, I don't know. Like,
1: Yeah,
3: I feel like, how, why, why did this happen? Like the grief, like if you know that where is the burial, like the funeral, right? And then, okay, you can take a rest, but you don't know what's happened to him mm-hmm. and where is the funeral, what What? What, what happened? I don't know. I want to know.
1: So, oh, so you mean that um, that when your mom said he disappeared, the idea is like, really, you don't even know if he has died or anything?
3: He The last time that the military uh, arrest him, that's it.
1: Wow. wow. So he could still be in prison.
3: So, I don't know what happened. Like, everyone... In that prison, already killed. So, but no one told like what's happened exactly. So, I think like so many, the third generation, after found out about their grand grand uh, father or mother, they have like the question that lingering. Like me, until today, I feel curious. Until mm-hmm. to this day, I feel like, okay, but what's happened? It's like mm-hmm. I have the same dream almost every night. I uh, took a train to my home in my village but I never reached that home that's like a crazy dream until to this day and my mother have a dream chasing by the civilians like and military uh, almost every night wow. the same dream I also have the dream because I don't I don't feel like that I want to come to home and find out what's happened. So that dream haunted me every night, actually, almost every night. I always have a dream. I took the train. I'm going to finish this feeling of curiosity and grief. And I didn't, I cannot stop the train to my home in my village where my grandfather came from, like cannot stop. And it's haunted me until today. So, I cannot imagine what happened with the other grandchildren. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah. So, this is just um, a little taste of what Vincent went through listening on our side, listening to just yeah, incredible it, yeah. stories. And then um, I don't know how you facilitate that, Vincent, yourself, but I'm just like somewhat dumbstruck by. <laughs> this.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's a whole, there's a lot of wrong ways to interview people about this kind of trauma, and there's mm-hmm. a, a very small number of right ways. And so the main thing to do is to to learn how to avoid of the wrong ways to talk to to these people so um as i said in solo i I spent a lot of time just kind of living in in like down the road from a group of of survivors that meet all the time and a lot of what i did was just sort of sit with people and slowly get a sense of who actually really wanted to do this Mm -hmm. and not really ever don't ever press on the detail you know let them take the story where they want it to go not press them on anything and some people you would realize okay this person really really wants to do this and really wants to talk about this and other people you realize very quickly no they don't and if they don't you just let them finish where at wherever they want to finish and that's fine you thank them very much and then you use that bit of that interview to sort of inform, inform the larger pro- project in a um in a broad sense but you don't go back and say well no but tell me like were you or were you not in the party and like what happened mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. just because a lot of you know and this you know find some people they slowly slowly over time a lot of people would tell me at the beginning, oh, no, I wasn't involved in politics uh, before 1965, which is like, OK, I know that's not true, but I'm going to let let them decide over time if they trust me enough to actually tell me. And then some people would be like, ah, actually, no, I was uh, I was in the, the 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 youth wing or I was I was a full member. I was a I was a cod there, you know, as they say, which means we really like brought into the party and took notes an and things. And, you know, there were some of the people, some of the people that ended up being really like the main characters, of the people that really, really wanted to do this so like uh francesca this amazing woman now in her mid-90s she has like a really sharp memory about everything that happened in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s uh and so she was amazing to be able to talk to forever and then sakono who is in solo who ended up being another main character he's somebody that like is still really like fierce about his left-wing convictions that he got in the in the early 60s and um you know like he, I just got like photos from him like his daughter just got married a couple weeks ago he's doing really well he really loves to like hammer home what what he the story that he wants to tell but many 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 other people you realize very very slowly or you realize very quickly oh no they don't really want to do this and it just it was just all about patience to to let other people decide if they want to be involved or not yeah it's
1: hard it's hard because there is such a it's a line between the political and the personal that's like but deeply tragic as well so I it's a really hard place to negotiate from um okay I don't know if I have any more questions I think we've we've talked for two hours and 20 minutes which is amazing um do you have anything to I mean, I'm sure we could talk forever, but that would be terribly imposing. So, um, do you have any? um
2: thing you
1: would like to. My
3: have? cat is coming. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: she wants to be Okay, yeah. yes. here. The
0: cat is the cat now. Is... The okay. cat is now calling times. The cat needs Fabriana back. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I. Um, no, I think this is. This has been really great. I, all I would say is thank you to. To the both of you and to febriana and to everybody that you know for whatever reason ended up showing interest in this um i don't uh it's weird that it was me that wrote it as we we we, we said at the very beginning but i'm very glad this is somehow existing and uh yeah i'm just really grateful to, to febriana and to both of you for 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 febriana's help and her placing a little bit of trust in me a couple of years ago and for both of your uh interest in 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 all of this Thank I mean, you. it's a
1: really great book, and it's a very American book, actually, even though I said that in the beginning. It is such an American story um, that needs to be told, so thank you.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you to Tanwafio who in <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Thank you,
0: so
2: thank you so much. <laughs>
3: thank because you so much. Because I said, Vincent, this is like Tanwafio contact me. Like, yeah, I yeah. Cannot say.
0: They like, cannot, okay,
3: I never, I can. Well, I never received, I never like accept any like invitation. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah, so, I, thank you so much.
1: The Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity is available as a podcast on Spotify and Amazon Music. You can also like and subscribe to our videos on YouTube. And if you want to help us grow, then you can become a patron
0: on Patreon. And that's it, right? I think that's it. That's it. it. Yeah. (laughs)